This is the Innovation Engine Podcast. Since 2014, we've been bringing you talks with some of the world's leading authorities on innovation. Topics we cover include emerging trends and technologies, corporate leadership, company culture, and more. Coming to you from Three Pillar Global's headquarters in Fairfax, Virginia, here's your host, Will Sherlin. Welcome back to the Innovation Engine Podcast. On this week's episode, I'll be talking streaming analytics with three of my colleagues from Three Pillar Global. We'll look at a tool they built for digesting vast quantities of streaming video analytics data and for visualizing that data in a meaningful way. The tool we'll talk about was built as a proof of concept for a major public television network, and you'll hear about the motivation behind its creation and other potential applications for the data visualization aspect of the tool over the course of the episode. Joining me in the studio here at Three Pillar are Dan Green and Chris Graham. And joining us over Hangout from Three Pillars India office is Syantam Day. Dan Green is the Director of Architecture at Three Pillar. He has close to two decades of software design and development experience with software and product architecture expertise in areas including e-commerce, geospatial analysis, SOA architecture, big data, and cloud computing. Chris Graham leads the media and entertainment vertical at Three Pillar, where he works with clients across the media and entertainment space, including those in broadcast media, online media, and publications and newspapers. Syantam Day is the director of Three Pillar's Advanced Technology Group. He's been with Three Pillar for a decade, delivering enterprise products, and building frameworks for accelerated software development and testing in various technologies. Scientum's current areas of interest include data analytics, messaging systems, and cloud services. Welcome to the podcast, gentlemen. Thanks for having us. Good to be here. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. It's our pleasure. So let's kick things off today talking about the project that led us to all be in the room together here in Scientum joining from India. It's a tool that, as I understand it, allows media companies to view stats about where their streaming clients are coming from, how that's affecting the quality of the viewing experience, and what to do about it. Is that accurate? Yeah, so I'll start with the business side of things. And what we're seeing with many media companies is um, a need to identify poor viewing quality and how do they react or fix that on the fly. So many media companies are streaming their content across many different devices, across many different products or applications, and they do hear from their users or their viewers that they try to watch something and it doesn't work. It buffers, it stalls, and so they get these complaints back in. By the time they get those complaints, it's after the fact. It's usually too late to improve that experience. So what we started to look at is how can we not only measure and see the analytics of how things are performing, but then also make changes or decisions that can improve that experience on the fly so that those, those, bad, uh, those bad streams don't actually happen. Okay, nice. And if we take this all the way back to the beginning, tell me, well, I guess you told me a little bit about the genesis of how this came to be, but was there a specific ask from a client? Was this a three-pillar labs endeavor? How did it come to be? Yeah, it's a great question. So it came from one of our media clients. Uh, They had identified this issue 
uh, internally on their side. Uh, they then invited us in to um, figure out how we could help solve the problem. Uh, and then in partnership with them, we did this out of our labs uh, team and we worked with the client as well. But for the most part, we were able to grab some data from them and then from there our labs team was able to take it on and, and build it entirely on our side. Okay, got it. And you, you mentioned some data from them. What kind of data are we pulling in from them? Yeah, so Dan can uh, probably speak to that a bit more on what we captured and, and what we're using it for. Sure. Pre previously, um, all of their servers, and they have about 800 production servers serving up video, were logging all of this traffic to file, and then they would chew all those log files the next day and see where they had trouble. So it's a great rear view mirror of where they had issues. They wanted to see this in, in more accurately in real time. So they sent us the full day's worth of data out of one of their servers, and we created a system to replay those events as if the clients were connected and passing the exact same um, buffering, plays, pause, stop, and in, in which videos they were watching. And we put together a console that would allow the client's operation staff to watch in real time what shows people were watching, the number of active users in the system, as well as where geographically the buffering events were happening. This would give the client the insight to change providers for content delivery. So they might go from an Akamai to AWS or, or Azure. Each would have different coverage areas handling things better or worse. So they would be able to make changes on the fly for where it's needed. And you mentioned, um, you mentioned buffering is the main thing that we're looking to uh, eliminate, I guess. Is there a certain threshold of time that's deemed to be like acceptable before something turns into an issue or flags the system? The, the way the system was designed, it was by, by watching an area, uh, it would count the number of buffering events that have occurred for users within a 10-second window. So for if it hit any number, it would start growing that, that rating, that, that negative score. Uh, and we overlaid this uh, geospatially on a map of the world so they could see a heat map of w physically where everything was having trouble. And it's really interesting that these issues were very much uh, geospatially co-located. The other thing we found when speaking with um, not only this client but other clients is that there are there are products out there, there are software tools that do some of this, um, more so on the reporting side of things. But what we found was this was a, a custom need, for lack of a better term, I guess, that um, they not only wanted to report and see what was happening, but then actually take action. And if they could see that this CDN is doing better than the other, swap those on the fly to eliminate that buffering scenario that Dan mentioned. Um, some of the tools that are out there can be expensive, so there is this build versus buy scenario that uh, media companies may go through to decide what is the right fit. Uh, we also saw this as an opportunity to um, be a platform, or rather a, a tool that fits into a larger platform uh, on the client side. Um, through this exercise, not only building the console itself, we were also able to um, compare uh, Spark, Storm, and Kinesis to see which was the right tool to use for that. So, Dan, I don't know if you want to talk a little bit more about, or Scientum, about the advantages and disadvantages to each or what where where they're strong um, in, in this type of use case. 
Yes, Ayantam, do you want to take that one? Yeah, sure. Uh, so, and before I just take that one on, I'd like to add to what uh, Chris and Andrew were saying. Uh, what about the tools, basically? Uh, so, what we, what I really liked about you know the the solution that we had built uh, was the lightweight frame uh, nature of the framework. Uh, I can pretty much run all of the components right on my desktop if I am using Vagrant as a development environment. Uh, then I can spin up the Vagrant uh, virtual machines right on my desktop, and everything just works. So you take that, take those components to a larger scale, uh, you know, scale them horizontally. So you're going to get a much higher throughput uh, with with a much less cost of hardware. So that's that's one thing that that's really nice for the solution. Um, and answering and, and talking specifically about the components that we've used. So uh, I think we have also blogged about this, Dan and I. Uh, we have uh, blogged about this. Uh, so the. Uh, <clears throat> So essentially, the architecture has uh, like four components. Like there, there needs to be an event source somewhere, some uh, the source of the events. Uh, so for in this case, it was the file system because we were reading or replaying the log files. But it could be a binary source like Avro or HTTP. Uh, and then we need a message broker where where these uh, messages can go and reside before the computation frame, framework picks them. Uh, so we used RabbitMQ for that, uh, but we could also use Kafka or Fume uh, for the same purpose. Uh, and in this case, we used uh, Spark. Uh, the Spark, and, and we had used Storm as well. Uh, there, I mean, it totally depends on uh, what kind of latency do you are you okay with. Uh, if you're not okay with subsequent latencies, then you should go for Storm. Uh, but like Dan was saying, we are actually analyzing the data over a 10-second period. So that micro batch architectures uh, supports it, it runs very well over Spark, and then of course you know you can have Spark has all the all the libraries for machine learning. Also, you can do batch processing. So if you are building a large scale system with both real time and batch systems, then you should probably look at Spark. Um, lastly, there, there there needs to be a computation store where because these computations are happening in real time, and um, you can so send them to a client uh, over a push API, but you also need to store those computations for later viewing for reporting. Um, so in any any of any of the newer uh, so-called NoSQL uh, databases can can be a good fit here, but um, you could also use a relational database as well. And, and how many streams are we talking about analyzing in, into the hundreds of thousands, the millions? So in this case, uh, in this case, there was one one stream, one large stream, I would say, uh, because the events were being played. Uh, but like you can connect this with Kafka, and then Kafka, as you know, is a distributed commit log, so it, you can have multiple streams as many as you want. But obviously, you'll have to scale horizontally the Spark cluster as well. Just to add to that, one of the nice advantages in, in processing over the last four or five years has been the ability to horizontally scale um, computational load. Uh, it was started um, by Google with their MapReduce approach that allowed you to throw more hardware to analyze lo incredibly large data sets. Um, but like I said, in the last four or five years, this has been applied to real-time data. An advantage of the Spark and Storm frameworks are that no matter what the scale of data coming in, whether it be media data or Internet of Things sensor data or weather phenomenon you're monitoring, 
you can add additional hardware that to scale with the volume of traffic that's coming in. And, and these new approaches and techniques really make this sort of framework possible, um, where all components of it can be scaled out to support the volume that you need. And also, I would imagine... If, if, if you can't do it now with this tool, perhaps in the future, you could make these things automated. So rather than seeing if, if you're at client X and you see that there are buffering issues, do you now have to manually spin up a new you know, AWS instance or is it set up so that, that just automatically happens and you don't have to worry about it? And yeah, exactly. There definitely is a, a, a level of automation that can happen here. So you know what, what this ends up addressing is on one side there's more of the business or executive view of being able to look at a dashboard on a large monitor and see okay things are going are well everything is is working fine or even if it's you know from a meeting on your phone looking at everything's correct um, it's that peace of mind on the other side it's the platform operations or DevOps teams, they're different names for the teams that we often see on the within the product development groups that are really maintaining and owning operations of these platforms. For them, maybe those those dashboards may um, may not um, be as important, but it it is peace of mind that they're seeing those issues get corrected on the fly if it's automated so that they know their team is not having to jump in and, and address a, either an internal or an external ticket that may come in from a from a user or a viewer. And I imagine you could apply the same type of tool to this is for streaming video, but say you wanted to just have it run for a website to see what average page load times are for your viewers throughout the world. Is it this, the type of thing that could be applied in just general you know, standard. Yeah, I mean, we're definitely seeing data visualization is a, is, a, is a hot topic for a lot of different companies, and there's ways to expose your data and dashboards so that you can see real-time what's happening. I think Dan actually mentioned a couple other scenarios that um, show that this isn't just for video play, video sessions. He mentioned whether, you know, with with our other customers that span from financial services to health and wellness, there's, there's other sets of data um, that you could look at real time and maybe make make decisions or changes on based on what's coming in. So I think this probably gets into Dan what what I often hear you talk about the difference between big data and fast data, right? I don't know if there's anything else you want to go into on on what you've seen. Yeah, there was a large push look talking around big data and the original three V's of big data were uh, volume that there was a lot of it. Uh, variety, that it came in different forms over time, and then velocity, that it comes in at a very rapid pace. Uh, the first two were handled mo very thoroughly by the industry, but the fourth one kind of fell by the wayside and fell into a, oh, we'll just store it and then we'll analyze it later. Um, whereas now that we can process things in real time, you can cross-reference multiple streams. You could combine the buffering data from your servers with watching uh, Twitter uh, to see the, the chatter on Twitter for something you're interested in and its impact on the load of your servers. And so all of your operational events and monitoring staff could all be co-processed and you could correlate these events together to get a true full picture understanding of what's going on in your organization. So I think some of the really, the big benefits of combining these multiple streams of information you have 
whether it be, like I said, social media, sensor data, um, or server data, um, all could really form some incredibly good insight and actionable intelligence um, to make changes to your structure, to buy more ad time, to there's a lot of potential use cases that could help a business out by, by watching the stuff happening, all the data that's happening in real time. Yeah, and these events can also be connected with uh, with systems that respond to those uh, events. So in the sense that you were saying that, yes, uh, if there is a buffering event that is occurring in a particular place, let's say somewhere around the New York region, then you could spin up an additional AWS server uh, in the in the New York in the New York region, and you know that could potentially take care of the the increased load. So it's not just it's not only about watching, but I mean by humans, but also machines could watch it and take appropriate action. And and Chris, you mentioned some of the tools that are publicly available already that can help with some of these types of things. Would those be like Splunk? I, I, I'm certainly no expert on, uh, on on streaming analytics tools, but but what are some of the off-the-shelf solutions that this might be similar to? Yeah, that's a good question. So there's a, a company called Eubora um, that has a similar tool, uh, I believe. But what you find with some of these off-the-shelf products is that you're buying you know, a software as a service and there may be um, additional reporting features or tool sets that you just you don't need. So I think there there is a scenario here to go through the build versus buy type of analysis. Uh, in some scenarios, it doesn't make sense to reinvent the wheel here and, and build from scratch. Um, but we have found that um, within many product organizations, there is an opportunity to use something like Storm or Spark and build this console and build it into an existing platform uh, and do it in a much more cost-effective way that meets your current needs and then can scale as, as things change in the future. And what was the reaction like from uh, Client X when they saw the, the work on the tool that you did? They were very excited. I think they look at that and immediately see the cost savings that they can have from an operational standpoint on tasks and things that come up day to day now that they know they have to deal with. Um, they also saw uh, this as being very helpful to their executive team um, and helps to keep people focused on the right priorities so that they're not all of a sudden sidelined and take have to go look into something that, that may or may not actually be an issue so those fire drills go away. Um, there was also a, um, the, the feedback that we saw or heard was that um, using these tools that are available was, was a way for them to quickly create a product or an application that, that met their needs without having to go buy yet another off-the-shelf product. Um, some of these reporting tools that are out there um, are, can be expensive. Uh, and so when, when they went through the exercise of deciding whether or not to build versus buy, in this scenario, it made sense to build. And it, it's cur yeah. is it currently, sorry, go ahead, Scientum. Uh, I was just saying that uh, beyond the, that customer that we initially worked with, uh, we, have, we have had a chance to work uh, and show this to other customers and they, are, they have been uh, equally excited. In fact, with another customer, I'm working with them to build a similar dashboard, uh, which takes into account the things that Dan was talking about, like correlations between different variables and how those correlations are affecting 
the state of uh, their their product or you know what they have basically they have uh, different uh, outcomes of the actions that uh, the users are taking on their side so they they want they want to see more dashboards that show the correlations of the users what the actions they uh, they are taking and what are the outcomes of those actions so what we now have within our labs team here is um, a proof of concept. We've built it out. We can demo it. Uh, for some clients, it it fits. It's it's the similar a similar scenario. For other clients, it's a it's a good starting point to understand what are the possibilities. Uh, but then their unique needs may, may have us go a different direction. I, I could view this as potentially being, for lack of a better term, an accelerator for our clients, meaning that we now have. Um, a code base that we could potentially leverage, um, but but where we go with this is we we're not going to productize this ourselves uh, and you know try to be both a services company and a product company. Um, our goal is to use this um, as a way to help consult with our clients on what are some of the possibilities. Uh, but realistically, we would we would build this for our clients as opposed to go and sell what we've already done. Yeah, the couple of people I have, clients I have talked to, uh, for them, uh, I mean, the idea that you could actually do a lot of processing and correlation in real time was sort of new to them because uh, if all of the, all, almost all of them were under the impression that you need to store everything first and then analyze everything and then uh, then you could do something useful with the data. But uh, even even, you know, uh, traditionally, uh, approaches and algorithms which are working on uh, a huge bunch of data, people are modifying them to work on uh, streaming data. So uh, people are actually modifying or inventing algorithms to work on like the streams of data, uh, and that's a that that is something that is going to be uh, we will see more of that in the future definitely. Yeah, to add to that, um, we're seeing some customers that are realizing the storage costs of holding all of that original, very low level detailed data is, is actually very cost prohibitive. That if you start tracking every single uh, sensor feed and storing all of that while storage is cheap, the data by definition is infinite. So by using approaches like real-time processing, they can do an aggregation of the data to lower the volume of storage by a factor of 10, 50, or 100 times less cost to store. This is important when you have that very low fidelity, uh, or sorry, high fidelity um, data that has a very low shelf life. So it's while it's interesting when it comes in, it doesn't really matter to pull up that specific row of data in a week. Whereas just capturing the aggregate and the summary uh, is going to serve the business need while saving substantial money on saving on storage costs. And and what might be examples of of what that kind of data would be? We we had one customer that was looking at storing um, a, a substantial amount of streaming data, uh, and they were going to store all the raw data. And what we had calculated out that for one of their customers. Uh, the storage costs per month were going to be in the $80,000 to just store the data, not even the process, to just store it. Um, and they realized that by the cost that they would have to pass on to their customers would end up making their product uh, priced out of the market. 
Um, and so by looking at it and, and just watching for, in their case, it was suspicious behavior in this data, that they could just care about the suspicious events and store them, which will be in the less than 1% of the data stream. Um, they still allowed uh, a, an allowance for storing a sampling of the raw data on occasion to allow their data scientists to do that sort of statistical analysis and look for new algorithms. But it wasn't a store everything and look at it later approach because just the cost was amazingly prohibitive. Okay, so Sayantam, you mentioned the blog post that you wrote up about this for the for the site. Can you give a little bit of detail on uh, on what reader on what listeners could find there if they were to go read the blog post on on the Three Pillar site? Yeah, so if you if you go onto the blog uh, the site uh, Three Pillar Global site and you go through the blog, uh, you will find that uh, Dan and I we have talked about the tech stack. Uh, that we have used, and we have also generalized the tech stack into four different components. Uh, also, it, it 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 describes the architecture that we uh, used for this particular client uh, that we worked for, uh, and uh, some of the screenshots of uh, the graphs that were being drawn in at real time, and you know the libraries uh, that we use like D3JS, OpenLayers. Uh, also. Uh, there are some pointers on how you can use a push architecture uh, so that there are, there is no uh, pole, wait, pole waiting at any stage uh, to have a truly reactive system. Uh, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a good introduction to how you can build a completely reactive system uh, that is, uh, that is that the objective of which is uh, like real-time visualization and storage. Okay, nice. Well, gents, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and sharing some of your experience on uh, building the the streaming analytics engine. Much appreciated. Thanks, Will. Thank you, Will. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks very much to Chris Graham, Dan Green, and Syantam Day for joining us for this episode of the podcast. If you'd like to learn more about who they are and what they do, you can follow them on Twitter at at Chris Graham at Mr. Dan Green, that's green with an E, and at Syantam, that's S-A-Y-A-N-T-A-M. You can also read Dan Green and Syantam Day's blog posts on the Three Pillar website at www.3pillarglobal.com and on the Three Pillar Labs website at labs.3pillarglobal.com. Thanks again to Chris, Dan, and Syantam for joining us, and thank you for joining us. Now, for the next episode of the podcast, we're going to bring you a bit of a teaser episode on the topic of virtual reality. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you may recall that we aired the inaugural episode of a new audio endeavor from Three Pillar called Take Three earlier this year. And next week, we're going to bring you another episode of Take Three that features two voices that should be very familiar to you, mine and Chris Graham. We'll have the wonderfully talented Julia Slattery interviewing us on the topic of virtual reality and our experience with it to this point. We'll also talk about industries that will be affected by VR, and we'll be setting the stage for the next episode of the podcast when Mitch Gelman is going to come in with an HTC Vive and Samsung Gear VR for us to get hands-on with, all while letting the audio and perhaps the videotape roll. So don't miss the next two episodes of the podcast when we'll be talking about VR and what it means for you. 
Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time. The Innovation Engine Podcast is recorded, produced, edited, and published by Three Pillar Global, a product lifecycle management and software development company based in Fairfax, Virginia. For more information on the company or our services, please visit our website at www.3pillarglobal.com. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or SoundCloud. And you can also download our very own iOS app in the iTunes App Store.